It's the Dancing Bear Variety Hour! Yes, welcome to the Dancing Bear Variety Hour, your home for radio comedy, the second Tuesday of every month. You are here with the writers, producers, and voice actors of the Dancing Bear Variety Hour. Um, minus one. Yeah, we wanted to shout out to Phil Garland, who's always up there. Uh, he's always up there in the studio with us. He writes for us. He's even a, he's even a great actor, you know. An excellent. Uh-huh. I'd like to think a little bit of Phil is with each of us today. I have his hair. That's weird. But okay. <laughs> I'm Scott Ross. I'm in the studio with Justin Wilson and Sarah Levins. I'm, I'm yes. Justin Wilson. I'd be Sarah Levins. Yep. Um, here at Dancing Bear Variety Hour, we're like always looking for a way to improve our show. So we thought we'd take uh, we'd take a page from the pros and start off with a little monologue. Um, we thought Sarah would be great for that. So we want to take it away, Sarah. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. Birthdays are a funny thing. I remember a few years back, I was so worried about missing my mom's birthday. I actually called her a month early and left this long... <laughs> Tonight on Under the Tunes, the story of Mitchell, the harmonica playing wombat. Mitchell grew up in the Wichita Zoo's Australia exhibit, the son of Joey and Sheila, two working class mammals. Mitchell started with almost literally nothing. We're just so proud of Mitchell. He's really taken our family name to new heights and has become a spokesperson for wombat rights. But life wasn't always so easy for Mitchell. He never took kindly to be put on display. He used to hide behind the rocks in the Australia exhibit. The zookeepers are always trying to coax him out with carrots and M&Ms. I guess I just realized I had a gift and wanted to share it. Being on stage was just part of the gig, I guess. It's different from the days at the zoo. When I'm in front of a crowd of 10 or 20,000 people, I really connect with them, you know? In a way that I never could behind the glass walls of the exhibit. How did you discover you had such a love for harmonica music? Funny story! One of the zookeepers, Jeremy, was obsessed with Dylan. So after hours, when he was cleaning the cages, he'd pump it through the loudspeakers. The ones that, you know, during visitor hours, played the ambient aboriginal didgeridoo music. So Mitchell approached Jeremy. He said if he'd give him a harmonica, he'd try to overcome his fear of crowds, make himself a little more visible. I never actually thought anything would come of this. Hell, I didn't even know what a harmonica looked like. Next day, he brought in a real nice honer in C, and something just clicked. People from all over the world came to see the wonderful, talented wombat with the harmonica. I remember hearing an interview with John Lennon. He said he felt like being behind the guitar kept him safe from the crowd. You know, allowed him to be who he really was. And that's how I felt. After my first album, Talking Low Down Under Vegemite Sandwich Blues, came out, we went on tour. With my lips on the harp, blowing the blues, I felt like nobody could touch me. You know, I was a king. But a usurper waited behind the scenes. Jeremy, the zookeeper, took personal credit for Mitchell's success and forced him to play shows throughout the country, leaving Mitchell with nothing for his hard work. You know, at first I was really excited. 
get out of the habitat, see the world, what have you. Maybe even meet a few babes along the way. You know, it was exhilarating. Jeremy kept the grass on the table, the booze flowing. I didn't have to worry about anything. What would you say your relationship was with Mitchell? Then? When I was his manager? Great! What about towards the end? No comment. One day I walked backstage. Jeremy was high and God knows what. Bragging to these groupies. I heard him say something like, and he has no idea how much money he's making me. He signed that contract. He can't even read. It was... It was... It's okay, Mitchell. You know, I just thought he was my friend. I never thought he'd take advantage of me like that, man. It was, it was shitty. It was really shitty, you know? He owed it to me, man. I'm the one who got him out of that zoo. I'm the one who gave him that harmonica. I made him. What's a wombat need money for, anyway? You never thought for a second you might be doing something wrong? Never. No. Never. And I, I, I just didn't know who to turn to. Who could I trust? Drugs seemed like the only answer. So I got high in the van by myself and decided to go for a walk downtown. And that night we were playing a show in Chicago. And I got lost. Missed the show. Only to find out later that they had cops out looking for me. Imagine a lone wombat trotting around the streets of Chicago, high off his gourd. Man, I was out of my mind. Ironically, Mitchell's first step toward addiction became his first step to independence. You know that scene in the Blues Brothers when they go to that church and Belushi's character sees the light shining through the stained glass window? Decides God's trying to get him to get the band back together? You saw the light? <laughs> well, I was wandering through this rent-to-own shop, and I saw an advertisement playing on TV. Hooked on Phonics, man. Can you believe it? Now, learn to read with Hooked on Phonics. I ran back to the van. No idea how I found it. Got on the phone and ordered the thing. Mitchell took a break from touring, went back to Wichita to live with his folks, and learned to read. I remember Jeremy finding me tooth and nail, trying to keep me from going back saying it would ruin my career to cancel the tour. It was absurd! He had it made! What did he want to read for? What's a wombat need to read for? Everyone else was hooked on drugs and booze and women. I was back home with my parents, learning to read. Mitchell the superstar heart-playing wombat transformed into a bookworm. It was so nice to have him back home. After learning to read, Mitchell got his GED, went to WSU, and eventually graduated with a law degree from Harvard. Revenge? Nah. I just wanted to get back what had been taken from me. Damn, Roden took everything from me. Well, technically you took everything from him first. Whatever. Everyone's on his side. I'm out. With the proceeds from his lawsuit against Jeremy the Zookeeper, Mitchell financed his second album, M is for Marsupial, and went back on tour, filling stadiums here and abroad with the luscious sounds of his harmonica. Since then, Mitchell founded SLAW, the Society for Literate American Wombats. Music's still my life, sure, but wombat literacy is my passion. Everything turned out alright, I guess. Thank <laughs> you.
Uh, uh, hello, C can everyone hear me? Hello, it's uh, it's a real delight to be ha at uh, St. George's Academy. D do I have that right, St. George's? I'm, uh, I'm actually surprised they let me in. The last time I was in a school like this, they assigned me this Nordic Protestant guide who uh, I think was there to make sure I didn't contaminate any of the student body. I'm sure this will be different, though. St. George, was he the one who liked the Jews? St. George the Semitophile? I want a story. Uh, yes, excellent point. Yes, uh, I've been asked to read here today. I brought this book. Well, as you can see, it's more of an, an illustrated story than a book exactly. Stone Soup. Sounds boring. Not afraid to volunteer an opinion, I see. Maybe I should just get started. Stone Soup. Once upon a time, three soldiers were traveling through the countryside, on their way back from the Crusades, no doubt. Now they came into a town and started looking for a place to eat, but no one would serve them. Every door they knocked on, people said, sorry, no hot feelings, but we don't have any food to spare. So our heroic soldiers went down to the river and got a pot of water and built a fire. And in the pot they put a big round stone, which is honestly probably an improvement over the kind of food I had as a kid, you know. I grew up in one of those old Brooklyn walk-ups with about a hundred other families. My mother used to compete with the others to see who could make the most flavorless food. For her, having matzah twice a day was too extravagant. What's matzah? That, that's a very good question. Matzah is a... The traditional food for a group of people who have a profound aversion to anything that makes you feel good. Is this part of the story? So, the soldiers tell the townspeople they're gonna make enough stone soup to feed the whole village, but need some more ingredients to spice things up a bit. First they ask for carrots, and the candle maker says, I have some carrots, I'll go get them. And then they say, potatoes go great with carrots, and the blacksmith says, yeah, I, ha I have a bag of potatoes. Now, I would have been in an uncomfortable position there because, you know, I don't like to share food. It's not that I'm selfish, it's just the thought of everyone else touching what I'm eating. I keep visualizing the germs on everyone's hands. Of course, I feel a compulsive need to please people, so I would be the guy who brings along his last potato and then doesn't have any stew. Everyone would say, hey, have a bowl, and I'd just be saying, no thanks, I filled up on pebble salad. I'm confused. Doesn't sound very good. Well, maybe not to you, but you know, it's a delicacy in Sri Lanka. So the townspeople bring all the ingredients to the soldiers and they put it in the stew. And uh, understandably, they're rather skeptical. They don't believe that the soldiers can feed the whole village with stone soup. Which, of course, reminds me of a girl I used to date a few years ago. She couldn't get excited, you know, physically, unless she was on drugs, which I've never been a fan of. I like to have a clear head because, you know, if this is what my head is like clear, then I don't need to see the alternative. But, you know, because this girl, I had to pretend that I was interested in drugs, too. So she'd take me out to this party. You are listening to the Dancing Bear Variety Hour on KGHK. Love. It's one of the most slippery words in our language. Pat Benatar says it's a battlefield. To DC Talk, it's a verb. Somewhere in between, we exist between love's push and pull, and we answer to nothing but desire. I'm Ari Kaplan. On today's American Lives, we're going to encounter lives torn between opposing desires, people who are making decisions to love and not to love, and how seemingly insignificant decisions can leave lasting marks. We begin today's episode with Jack Worthington. 
Central High School, Cape Girardeau, a relatively nondescript town nestled along a river bend on the mighty Mississippi. I myself, Jack Worthington II, am a foreigner to these parts, my clan being recent immigrants from the Dutch country of Eastern PA. I hope these modest sketches might serve to document life as it is lived in the Midwest today, as well as help me gain a better appreciation for this community's decent, hearty folk. Watch it, nerd. Nicknamed El Grande de Soto, the Mississippi River moves past our small hamlet at a relaxed pace. There's good fishing to be had here, I've heard, but today the chilly temperatures had driven even the most fanatic anglers from their perch along the shores to their warm homes. I'm biking along the river trail this morning as I make my way to Central Junior, where on Saturdays I mentor a ragtag gang of middle schoolers through an organization called Destination Imagination. Stop! Jeremy, do you really think that is going to cut it at state? How many times do I have to tell you? React! This isn't Brecht, it's improv. But... No excuses, Jeremy. Do it again. Do, do or die! D.I. Most evenings you can find me at the back of the house at Mel's. Alright, Pete. Burn one. Take it through the garden and pin a rose on it. How long on that burger, Jack? On the five, sir. Hey, Perez, throw me a slab of moo and let him chew it. It's not a bad joint. Apart from the food that's sure to line your arteries with concrete, the coffee's not bad, provided you drown it in cream, and I serve up mean- Hey, Jack! Yes, sir! Where the hell's my burger? What I'm saying is, I keep busy, and I really feel I'm coming in my own here, however impossible that seemed just a few months ago. That's not to say I'll be voted class president anytime soon. Still, I've carved out a respectable circle of Piers, Ronnie, Mike, and Jeremy, who you've already met. What's up, guys? What's up? Hey. Yeah, I'm alright. What'd you make of Mr. Whitley's lecture on plate tectonics? Man, I'd love to find out where that guy received his crackerjack degree. I mean, haven't we moved beyond the Pangaeic paradigm? I tell you right now, I could cite three well-respected scientists at MIT who could support my position. I think of the things that these kids are learning. I mean, am I right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Things are going along smoothly. Although the educational challenge was certainly lacking, I had developed a tight set of friends, was making some decent bread at Mel's, and I had a great set of kids at Central Junior who were sure to upend reigning champs Perry County Middle, who I hear are the worst sort of delinquents. But as George Harrison said, sunrise doesn't last all morning. And the cloudburst obscuring the golden horizon had one name, Ludvika. An exchange student from Lithuania, Ludvika came breezing into our lives, tearing everything asunder. Ludvika. Hello, Jack. Ludvika, you need to speak into the mic. Hello, Jack. You can hear in her voice subtle hints of her homeland. Mama and Papa tending the fertile soil, raising a small head of cattle. The cozy feel of their mud floor cottage, a steaming bowl of borscht, its savory aroma wafting into the garden. I am Ludvika, and this semester I will be directing John Osborne's Look Back in Anger. In this play, we encounter a love triangle involving an intelligent and, and educated, educated but, but disaffected young, young man working, working in a class, class order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure most of our listeners are quite familiar with Osborne's early work. 
What I think most people are concerned about is why you are chosen as director. I'm sorry? I was willing to set aside our differences. In gym class, she had bested my time mile, previously a school record, by a comfortable 10 seconds. In American history, she volunteered to recite by memory the Declaration of Independence. She was promoted to drum major a week after enrollment. She was the talk of all the groups, the jocks, the cheerleaders, the greasers, they all loved her. I mean, it's not every day that Osborne gets staged in such locales as these. Don't you think someone more familiar with Osborne's work? Someone who had more experience with managing a set? Someone who... Yes, Jag, I understand your concern. Though if you had read Angry Young Men, John Osborne, The Cult of Masculinity, and Secondary School Adaptations, published earlier this year in the Columbia Journal of Literary Criticism, you may better understand how Osborne's work is so well suited to our production. And, and of course the play was a hit. Each showing was sold out, and every night the applause seemed to grow louder. The three-night run had easily outsold my recently staged Beckett monologues. The St. Louis Post-Stitchpatch even sent a man down. It was only then that I realized I was no longer the exotic specimen, the stranger at the table, the object of bigger boys' abuse. Now I passed through the hallway unnoticed. Instead of Tanner joshingly tossing my books across the biology lab, he was busy turning through Ludwig's pen and ink sketches of amphibian anatomy. It wasn't until Miss Reynolds entered the class to begin her typical dry instruction that I finally realized I was in love. The great earthquakes of New Madrid in the years 1811 and 1812 remain the most powerful earthquakes to hit the eastern United States in recorded history. It devastated large swaths of lands across Arkansas, Tennessee, and Missouri, and most famously, temporarily caused the Mississippi River to run backwards. In what is surely to be an overstated and eco-critically conflicted metaphor, this romantic revelation wreaked havoc on my typically cool demeanor. Love had me feeling that I too was moving backwards. I hadn't really noticed that you changed until, I don't know, maybe today. I mean, you always had something degrading to say about the school's chicken parmesan. Whatever. It's awesome. But nothing. Not a thing. You've always been a dreamer, kid. That's why I like you. Maybe you can't flip an egg, but you got moxie. You'll go places. <laughs> oh yeah, you'll go places. Mel wound up being more right than he could have guessed. Before I knew it, the semester was at an end, and it was state final season. The Central Junior DI team would travel to Columbia to meet the universally hated and culturally backward Perryville DI team, and I would serve as team manager. I was looking forward to the journey, especially lunching with an MU professor over a discussion of the Dutch masters, those divine painters who have so shaped my own little compositions. So I'm here in the Central Junior parking lot, a brisk Saturday morning, about to head out. Get these wheels on the road. Hey, Jack. I'm recording, Jeremy. Jesus, I was just bringing you coffee. Black? As is the night. Ah, sorry, Jeremy. I guess I've been pretty foul lately. Don't worry about it, pal. How do you spell sensuous? S-E-N-S-U-O-U-S. -S -S. Who are you texting there? 
Rita. Is she your... Yeah. Wow. Jeremy, do you happen to hold a Class B license? I could keep her between the lines. You tell Professor Brodenheimer we'll need to reschedule. I've loaded the back of the van with chips, sandwiches, soda, and a variety of citrus fruits. We're covered by AAA, but if anything happens, you can reach me at this number. Thanks, Jack. Jeremy, you were going to make a hell of a captain. Do or die, D.I. Let's head out, maggots. Move, move, move. Godspeed. It was Saturday morning and I had skipped breakfast, and if I bike straight over to Central High, I might just get in a peer tutoring session to revise an old essay covering contemporary Lithuanian international relations. And we're glad to let you know Jack's article has been accepted for publication and will be serialized in future issues of The Economist. And even better, Jack and Ludvika are co-coordinating next Friday's halftime show. The name of the performance? River of Love. All right. Welcome back to Dancing Bear. Um, We want to thank you all for listening tonight. Scott had to leave early today. Um, He's coordinating with the folks in our mailroom to make sure that they had the address right. Um, So Justin and I will be closing out the show on our own. Uh, Yeah, but before that, uh, it's time for the tallest building in Topeka Award. That is right. That's right. Uh, This is our third edition of the tallest building in Topeka Award. Uh, The Bank of America, our reigning champion, is pitted against the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad General Office building. Not to mention still eyeing that coveted prize is the docking state office building on Southwest Harrison Street. Okay, um, this month's tallest building in Topeka Award goes to... Um, Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad General Office Building. (gasps) Shocker. Oh, my God. Wait, wait, hold on. There's been a mistake. I'm sorry, folks. Scott has just returned to the studio. Apparently, there's been some sort of mistake. Uh, Bear with us for just a moment. Okay, apparently there was a mix-up with the ballots. Ooh, uh, foul play? Tampering? No, nothing that exciting, I'm afraid. Um, Apparently some of our judges weren't quite clear on the guidelines for the award. Uh, After the disqualifying ballots have been thrown out, I'm here to announce that the actual winner this week is the Bank of America building. No surprise there. Uh, No, not really, no. Uh, well, um, Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, General Office Building, uh, sorry for getting your hopes up. Your consul- consolation prize will be in the mail shortly. Oh, well. Yeah. There's always next month. Yeah. Yeah. Goodbye, love. This episode of the Dancing Bear Variety Hour was written, performed, and produced by Scott Ross, Justin Wilson, Sarah Levins, and Phil Garland. The Dancing Bear airs the second Tuesday of every month at 7 p.m. on KJHK 90.7 and streaming at kjhk.org. You can listen to past episodes or individual sketches at the news desk at kjhk.org. Questions, comments, and bangering ideas for sketches can be sent to news at kjhk.org or tweet us at kjhknews. There's a star man waiting in the sky He'd like to come and meet us 
but he thinks he'd blow our minds. There's a star man waiting in the sky. He told us not to blow it, cause he knows it's all worth buying. Told me, let the children use it, let the children lose it, let all the children boogie. This episode of the Dancing Bear Variety Hour originally aired on Tuesday, November 12th, 2013 on KJHK 90.7 FM. You can check out past episodes of the Dancing Bear Variety Hour or any of our other arts and culture podcasts at kjhk.org. Download entire episodes like this one you're listening to right now or just listen to individual pieces, sketches, and stories. You can listen to our arts and culture lineup on 90.7 FM in the Lawrence, Kansas area or stream it live on iTunes or kjhk.org.